Welcome to The Defiant Podcast. Each week, we sit with those defying traditional finance and legacy institutions, the biggest brains and biggest names, and also those making a quieter but profound impact, the founders, investors, and creators of decentralized finance and Web3. You'll hear from them right here and get the scoop on how they're building at the frontier. I'm your host, Defiant founder, Camila Russo, putting this new world within your reach. Kevin, welcome to the Defined Podcast. It's great to have you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Really excited to be here. Kevin So is the founder of crypto quant fund Galois Capital and former head of trading at Kraken. It's been a wild few days in crypto and Kevin is here to help us get our heads around what the hell just happened. We saw Terra, one of the most prominent ecosystems in crypto, effectively disintegrate over less than a week. Its native token Luna had over 40 billion in market cap at its peak, and nearly all of it was wiped out. While UST, which was supposed to be a stablecoin worth $1, crashed. It was a historical moment in crypto, as never before had a project that big crashed so hard so quickly. Kevin was one of the few who saw it coming and predicted the fall just a couple of months ago. What were some of the red flags that helped him spot the fallout? DYDX, the Decentralized Derivatives Exchange, is on a mission to build the world's leading crypto trading platform. To further this mission, the team is now developing the next version of the protocol, V4. DYDX V4 is planned to launch at the end of 2022, and it will be open source, fully decentralized, and entirely controlled by the community. To help power this next step, DYDX has launched a grants program with funding allocated to open source builders, contributors, and ecosystem integrations. Come build the future of decentralized trading at DYDX Grants. Yeah, I think I first came across it, at least I at least studied it fairly carefully sometime in 2021. And at the time, it wasn't as big as it is today. I didn't think too much of it. I thought, oh, it's just one of these stable coins that probably just will never work out, but never paid too much attention to it. And then started revisiting it a lot more heavily in January of this year. And at this point, it had already blown up to such a big point. It was, I think, at, the, at that point, already a top 10 coin. At this point, I started getting a little bit a little bit scared. I think before we've seen these kinds of algo stable coins collapse, and we have basis, based, basis cash, ample forth. ESD, DSD, YAMS, the list goes on. And the, the latest one before Luna was um, Wonderland Time. And I remember being there for that collapse, and there was already quite a bit of financial contagion. It spread across multiple assets. There were these protocols that were composed on top of each other that owned each other's treasury assets, either directly or indirectly. Some of it was even farming on Anchor. And that one, we survived. We basically were able to get out of that one okay. This next one, when I was looking at Luna, I thought, now that this thing is so big, this is an order of magnitude bigger than Wonderland time, this could be absolutely devastating for the space. And uh, I think some of it was, some of me paying attention was also, of course, for profit too. I think there was a good shorting opportunity. And I think there'd be a, a great play to be made there. But I think some of it also is that this thing is so big, it affects everybody. And I think it's just important to sound the alarm and spread the word. So that's when I really started very aggressively tweeting about it. And it's around that time that you have all these fanatics, these lunatics in 
Terra in the Luna ecosystem. And they're just like the XRP army. They're like the Link Marines. Everybody's rabidly defending and attack, defending the protocol and attacking anybody who says anything negative uh, about them. A lot of what I was saying was getting drowned out because nobody was, everybody's just like slinging mud all the time and had to weather a lot of sticks and stones, slings um, and arrows during that period of time. But I think over time, I think eventually people started to see that, you know, what me and I think a couple others, there was at least a handful of us, maybe five or 10 of us on Twitter who were really aggressively sounding the alarm. And I think finally, crypto Twitter started listening a little bit more, opinions started getting changed. And then finally, that plus, so basically the changing of the narrative, and then on top of that, the compounding effect of the equity markets completely uh, crashing just a couple of days ago and crypto being super correlated to equities also collapsing very strongly triggered this run on the bank. And that's basically how everything started. Equities crashed, the entire market crashed. And then basically when the market crashes, when we're looking at the mechanism of Luna and UST, basically as the market goes down, as the value of Luna goes down, then basically what backs the UST also goes down. Because UST stays at the same market cap, but Luna is supposed to be backing it. So that's going down. And then all the external collateral that they had bought, the $3 billion that they had bought in Bitcoin, that also is losing value. So then people start to get scared. And at the same time, a little bit, a tiny bit of money was starting to come out of Anchor from then the reduction of the yield from 19.5 to 18%. It wasn't that much. That alone wouldn't have done it. A lot of these things alone, I don't think would have done it. It's just a, a cacophony of these kinds of events, this coincidence of these kinds of events and the stars aligned. And then they basically triggered a bank run. And once that started, it only fueled itself. It's like one of those things that just keeps uh, getting bigger and spirals out of control. And then basically now we're seeing hyperinflation with Luna and everything, everything has just been taken down. And I think also some people might say, what about the rest of the markets? I think a lot of what's going on is that we have these large firms in crypto and some of them funds who are maybe levered long Luna or levered short UST somewhere along the way or originally, but at some point they're just getting margin called as the price keeps dropping. And then they have to sell off all of their good mm-hmm. assets, the non-toxic assets to then basically cover their margin. And, uh, and then some of them, they wound down their position, maybe they were okay, they only took some damage, but some they doubled down and then they just keep selling all the good assets to double down in their position to support a bad asset. And then some of them are just going to get wiped out. So that's how I think a lot of that contagion spread to the rest of the market, just from purely a mechanical standpoint. And then on top of that, there's also psychologically, as people are risking off, then people start wondering, oh, what other risks am I not seeing? Maybe Tether is going to depeg too. Maybe we should short that thing. We should get out of mm-hmm. Tether. Maybe Ethereum is not as sound as I thought. Maybe Solana or Avalanche is not as sound. So then widespread panic starts to spread. Um, maybe some of it even unwarranted. But when people start thinking about that these massive losses are even possible from a top 10 coin, then people start getting really spooked, right? Because people have heard about a page two coin gecko, top 200 coin, maybe going to zero very quickly, but like this sharply and for this high of a market cap coin to evaporate like double digit billions worth of value in a couple of days. Now everybody's spooked about everything, right? So that, that's also how I think fuel fear kind of fuels itself too. Yeah, it, it was really so impressive to to witness. I also think it was seeing that that market cap flip between USC and Luna that I remember being like, okay, like now this will really trigger e- even further losses because it's like there's nothing there. There's just not enough uh, capital to to back this. 
and then and now like yes. with the, the huge kind of hyperinflation of Luna, it's, it doesn't matter. You can I, I, you can print trillions of this, but if it's worth nothing, it's it's still not, it's never going to be enough, really. Yeah, definitely is the case. And what I wanted to say is that the inflation is so bad right now in Luna that I think it's a step beyond hyperinflation. Mm. I think it's the hyperinflation of hyperinflation, as in hyperinflation itself is accelerating. And it's because as you mint Luna by burning UST, let's say the first clip, you have to mint a million Luna to do. Then the next clip, you have to mint a billion Luna to do. Next clip, you have to mint a trillion. Next clip, you have to mint a quadrillion. Soon, things really get out of control. So not only is there hyperinflation, but there's accelerating hyperinflation on top of that. So I think it's a very dangerous time. And I, I also think that when you look at what happens at the very boundaries of all of this, right, which is that when Luna price is so compressed that it is now lower than a single tick above zero on an order book in an exchange, right? So like, for example, a tick might be some exchanges use one penny as a tick, for example. So when Luna's value is below half a penny, technically it rounds down to zero, which means that there is no bid side liquidity whatsoever. It's a one-sided order book. There's only offers and there's no bids. Oh, wow. And at that point, even the UST, there's no longer even an incentive to inflate it further because none of the UST can even get its own value of a dollar's worth of Luna. No matter how many trillions or quadrillions of Luna equals $1, there's no way for them to even monetize that to get back the value that they have in UST. That's basically one of the other things that I predicted is that in the final death throes of the system, what's going to happen is that you're going to get price compression so bad on Luna that it's below a single tick, bid side evaporates, and then everything left in UST is just bad debt. Mm. So everybody before that could actually come out and do this arbitrage where you're basically getting the, the, the system itself still thinks that UST is worth $1. The underlying system still thinks it. So it'll give you $1 worth of Luna. But then eventually, once all bid side liquidity evaporates, then all of the rest of UST is just bad debt mm. and it's worthless, basically. So, you know, that's what I'm seeing. Because I, I saw earlier that UST, you know, is trading at many multiples of the market cap of Luna. And that's just for sure there's going to be some bad debt in there. So it's mm. almost a game of musical chairs to see who can exit out first. Mm. And then everybody left holds the bag to zero, basically, on UST. And this happens when Luna uh, liquidity evaporates. And I also wanted to just rewind a little bit and talk about something that you brought up, which was pretty interesting, which is you mentioned that there was a point during the crash before all of this mm -hmm. where the UST market cap flipped Luna's market cap. And then it became very obvious that this thing probably was insolvent. Mm -hmm. right? And I think the claims that I made, if you look at a lot of my earlier predictions and my tweets, the claims that I made were that Luna was very insolvent already before all of that. Hmm. Even when Luna's market cap was 4x, even 5x that of USTs, it was already insolvent. In, in what it was way? Just not, yeah. So I'll explain that a little bit. What I wanted to say is that it's just not obvious, right? Mm. So like when the market caps flip, then it becomes obvious. In my opinion, even before that, it was already insolvent, even with very high Luna market cap. And the reason for this is because when you sell into an order book, into the bid side of an order book, you incur slippage, right? So if you sell a million, you're going to get a, a certain price, maybe a little bit below fair market value. If you sell a billion, you're going to get much lower than the price than what you, when you sold um, a million. So with each successive sell of UST into Luna, as you're unwinding, let's say $18 billion worth of UST, each successive sell compresses the Luna market, uh, market cap 
by more than a factor of one. It turns out historically, now that we've seen this thing play out, my guess at the time was generously, very generously, three to five, medium generously, five to eight, and then a bit on the aggressive side, eight to 10x on this kind of multiplier effect of selling assets down and how much it compresses the market cap. It turns out historically, now that we've seen it play out, the rate was about eight to nine. So it was about the eight to nine ratio, which was on the very more extreme, more dangerous side. But in any case, generally what that would mean is that you need eight to nine X on Luna's market cap to sustain whatever UST's market cap is. So really the whole thing was just an illusion that there was solvency because they, were, they had created a giant supply sink for all the UST in anchor with the subsidized yields at 19.5%. So that's basically what my advocacy was. Uh, what I was saying isn't that just that Luna is insolvent. What I'm saying is that it was always insolvent and it was insolvent by a lot. Even then when Luna's price was in the high 80s, high hundreds, like it didn't matter. It was insolvent by a lot. And I think that's something that I think a lot of people would probably think that I'm a bit more on the extreme side, but that was my opinion at the time. So... Right now, I, I still see kind of UST has a market cap about $4 billion. Does that mean, is, is that kind of what holders are now stuck with? Is that kind of the, the losses that in, investors have to just like write off? Yeah. So what I would say is that Luna's price right now is still between two and three cents. So they can still get some money out. Right. The amount that they're getting out becomes less and less over time. And eventually there's going to be some bad debt. How much total bad debt is left in the system? I would say hard to say. Right now, the market cap of UST is four billion, but that's at a price of UST of 31 cents. There's actually the amount of UST that's in the system is eleven point seven billion of mm. circulating supply. So if that were a dollar, that's $11.7 billion. So out of where it should have been, how much bad debt is there? I would say at this point, probably seven to eight billion, maybe eight to nine billion of bad debt. I think at most they'll be able to get out maybe another two to three billion uh, at most through the hyperinflation of Luna before complete bid side liquidity evaporates. Oh my God, this is, it's so tragic. I want to get your sense of, who exactly are uh, left holding the bag? Are these retail investors who got in thinking that this was a saving in instrument, that they were getting into something safe, a stable coin, that they were pretty much guaranteed a 20% return? Or is it more like a crypto, more savvy investor who maybe knew what they were getting into? Like, what's your sense? Yeah, it's actually, I think from what I've seen, at least, and the rumors that I've heard, it's a mix of all of those folks. Mm -hmm. You definitely have folks on Twitter uh, who are just individuals, retail investors who just say, oh, they lost everything, basically. They lost their mortgage. They lost other savings. Very devastating. And then you also have funds and investors on the professional institutional side who will probably shut down from this event. There's going to be some that completely blew up and there's going to be some that took on losses so big that they would not be able to continue their activities. So I think we're going to see how that shakes out pretty soon, but I've at least heard examples of multiple of both retail and institutional investors losing a lot of money. Wow. It's interesting what you were mentioning before about the, the need to have for the system to work, that you'd need to have a, a, a volatile token collateralizing the stable token 
with a market cap that is many times higher than yeah. that of the stable uh, token. You were saying uh, eight to nine X uh, times. If that had been the case, if, if Luna had been worth uh, a lot more so that its market cap was a lot higher, could this thing have worked out? And I guess like the more general question is, do you think there is still hope for algorithmic stable coins with maybe a, a modified type of design? Maybe if there was actual kind of underlying or more underlying demand for Luna or for the collateral asset? I don't know. Are, are there things that can be done or would you completely scrap this idea? Yeah, on, on your first point, I would say that instead of Luna market cap being a lot higher, what I would say is it would have been way better just to cap UST issuance right? If UST only got issued out instead of till 19 billion, maybe if it was like 10 billion or something like that, or like 5 billion, maybe that would have been a lot more prudent, right? Because it's very hard to say how high Luna could have gotten, right? If the market conditions were right, or the feds didn't raise the interest rates or something, that's not something that the people in charge uh, of TFL can really control. But you could have some kind of soft cap on the issuance itself, either hard cap or soft cap, cap at a five or 10 billion or something like that. Uh, or just even say that the cap is literally what the market cap is, uh, of, of the volatile asset is divided by eight or divided by nine, something like that. You could do it that way. Now, I don't want that experiment to happen because I'm sure there's like other weaknesses. I, I generally tend to think, my opinion is that I just tend to think that generally these kinds of algorithmic stable coins that basically are feedback mechanisms of, of these contraptions that uh, contract and expand supply through some kind of mechanism. They're all the same, basically. Like when you reduce it down at the end of the day, there's some point at which something causes it to contract because its price is too high or, or that causes it to inflate when the price is too high and causes it to contract when the price is too low. It doesn't matter how many bells or whistles you attach to it. It doesn't matter how many you know feedback loops you go through, how many knobs and dials you turn to make that happen. Ultimately, that's basically the idea and everything reduces down to that idea. So I just generally think that it can't work because effectively what's going on is that these guys are trying to play the Fed. But instead of having humans with economic models, they're using some kind of predetermined algorithm. And the Fed doesn't even work. I don't even think the Fed works. So how can they? How can this stuff work when, first of all, it, it, it's like the Fed and the Fed doesn't work? And second of all, they can't force people to pay their taxes in their coin, and they can't force OPEC to trade oil in their coin. So they're basically like a Fed with fiat money, but a very weak Fed with one arm tied behind their back. It like, doesn't matter how if you do open market operations, doesn't matter if you replicate everything that the Fed does, it's just going to be worse because you don't have those two pillars. And even then in the long run, I don't think the Fed works. So, you know, that's just, that's what my thought is. When it comes to fiat currency, like the US dollar, there is intrinsic demand propping up its value stemming from trade, foreign countries borrowing in dollars, and using dollars in their central bank reserves. Luna, the token backing the UST stablecoin, did not have such strong demand, and that ultimately led to its downfall. Can this mistake be corrected? Is there any hope for algorithmic stablecoins? Check out Oasis Network, one of the fastest growing layer one blockchains. Oasis aims to offer improved privacy and scalability compared to other existing blockchains. They have a $200 million ecosystem fund to help projects build on its network, and it's supported by investors including Pantera, Binance Labs, Dragonfly, and Electric Capital. DeFi on Oasis offers close to zero gas fees, 
high throughput and has surpassed $250 million in TVL in a few months. Some of Oasis DeFi projects include Texas like YuzuSwap and GemKeeper and Fountain Protocol, a cross-chain lending platform. Visit oasisprotocol.org to learn more. Yeah, what I would say is that there is something to be said about the demand side, right? Uh, but as for the U.S. government, right, they're very powerful. They can uh, throw their weight around. They can drive demand to dollar hegemony. With these coins, they don't quite have the military strength in order to do that. Now, as a this is a little bit bleak, but if you bear with me on a thought experiment, suppose at some point one of these coins also founded a village in the physical world and they had a complete military control as warlords over this community and they forced everybody to use their coin then yeah that would be sustained demand and in that sense they at least have one hand half of a hand not behind their back when they had one hand behind their back the other half is that you need it to be accepted in international commerce. So you need to be able to get other villages to accept your token and your coin for something in which everybody demands, something like oil, for example, that everybody would need. If you could do that within this community of villages, and in your village was able to do that, then your village probably could make an algo stable coin work for some time, maybe 100 years or so. Okay, but <laughs> for all of that to happen, it's like so far-fetched that it's okay. Probably not going to happen. What about other more decentralized stablecoins? Because some of the fallout that we've seen from this is a complete kind of loss of trust in, yeah. in obviously all alg algorithmic stablecoins. But as you mentioned before, even on Tether, which is at least partly backed uh, by fiat. I've seen DAI maintain its peg, but I also saw uh, DAI supply really plunge in the, in the past couple of days. So people are getting out of, of DAI and DAI is collateralized and backed by, by digital assets. So to you, is there hope for a, a kind of more censorship resistant stablecoin or is really the only model that will work this over collateralized stablecoin and even one that's backed by either over collateralized or or just like backed one-to-one -one with fiat is that kind of the, the only way out and if yes is there it, 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 that would mean that there's not much hope for a truly decentralized DeFi if kind of one of the core components is stablecoins and if we will rely on fiat currency to back our stablecoins then yeah the system is not like very decentralized at its core. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess before I, I say anything there, I just want to say that I'm a big fan of decentralization. So I would very much like for there to be a truly decentralized stablecoin. But at the same time, I want to be realistic. And I don't want to just through hopium, try to believe that a malconceived contraption will work, right? And in trying to be realistic about it, I just don't think that is possible. I think it's basically the analogy like the Fed. You can mimic open market operations. You can mimic control over interest rates. You can mimic all this stuff. I, I think it's just a bit too difficult. That being said, I think that even without a decentralized stable coin, there are still some elements of DeFi which can work. And they can work in tandem with centralized stable coins like Tether and USDC. And you can also work with 
other types of decentralized stablecoins, the make or die model, if it wasn't already so centralized and the backing is already so much USDC, but something like that. Now, that's not very capital efficient because anytime you have to over collateralize, you're actually doing a lot of balance sheet contraction. You can't grow as fast, but it is more sound. And I think, of course, there are still risks there. And I wouldn't just say, oh, that's like the perfect model either, because you still have black swan risks where if the price gaps, you could just be underwater uh, on your collateral and you could just walk away from your collateral. So then there are situations where if the price drops too quickly, that people will walk away from their bad debt and then the bad debt stays within the system. And then there's like ways of recovering it, but then you have to print maker. There's all sorts of like stuff there. But then we start to enter into a world where a system has bad debt and needs to inflate a volatile asset away in order to shore it up. But at least this is much more sound than a pure algorithmic stable coin because you have that collateral there and it really requires like a real like three sigma, four sigma event, maybe even five sigma event for something really bad to happen. And I think that probably should suffice given that the holding period for holding stable coins for a lot of use cases may not be super high is that it's an intermediary, liquid intermediary between other uh, assets that you want to hold. I definitely think that there is still a lot of hope for DeFi and some collateralized stable coins, even slightly under collateralized stable coins, I think maybe are okay, but but not even close to the level that we've seen with, with Luna and UST. It was the ratios were just way too off. What about Tether? Because we did see it depeg a little bit. And I think from the NYAG investigation and other documents, I, I believe it's at about like 70% collateralized with like actually backed by by fiat and I think other bank paper and, and so on. Do you think that's enough or do you see it, it seems like people were losing trust in the level of of collateralization yeah. that Tether has. Do you think going forward, yeah. that'll be an issue? I, I think that it's mostly fine for now, but I want to caveat that and say that there's a lot of nuance to that, which is that first of all, if they're holding some stuff like corporate bonds or like commercial paper or like dollar-like instruments, but that are not perfectly liquid like the dollar, then it's not maybe taking on a little bit too much risk and maybe it shouldn't be done that way. But what I would say is that's still a lot safer than just backing it with a completely volatile asset. At least these are more dollar-like as instruments. Now, that being said, what you could just consider this thing as, you don't have to, we don't have to call it a stable coin. We could just say that it's a basket of its underlying, right? So we could say that this is basically worth 60% cash, 20% corporate bonds, 20% commercial paper, and that's basically what you're actually holding. Mm -hmm. And roughly most of the time, it functions like it's a dollar, but intrinsically, we understand that it's a basket of these three different assets, right? So that seems perfectly fine. As long as it's transparent, that's what this thing is, right? Now, if you want to call it a pure cash back stable coin, then you got to back it with cash. But if you want to call it like a stable-ish coin, that's 99.99% just going to function like cash, but sometimes it may just completely just get wrecked, then you could call it a that. It's just a basket, right? Yeah. So I think as long as there's transparency and the market has the option, then it's, it's going to be different people going to choose different things. Maybe you earn a little bit more interest when you have some commercial paper mm -hmm. in there. You know, I think all that's fine. So it's just, it's just whatever people want. Now, in Tether's case specifically, what I want to say is that I think they did a lot of shady stuff in the past. But that being said, I actually do think that they're fully backed. And I think they're actually over-collateralized at this point because one of the things that they did that they shouldn't have done 
is they actually went long Bitcoin using the funds that were supposed to be sitting in dollar. But they did it at a time when it was a bull market. So they accidentally made money and actually accidentally made it more than over collateralized. Now, maybe they pocketed most of the profits themselves. Maybe the Tether company pocketed most of the profits themselves. But I, I, I imagine that they would leave some extra buffer there just to make it a little bit extra collateralized uh, or not. Or maybe they just left all of it. So that's one thing they really shouldn't have done. That was uh, that was very shady of them, mm-hmm. I think, to do. But they ended up getting lucky. These guys just keep getting lucky all the time. The other thing they shouldn't have done is they shouldn't have given their sister company. So they're both owned. The Tether and Bitfinex are both owned by Ifinex, which is the holding company. And they shouldn't have given Bitfinex a loan for $800 million or something like that way back in the day. Because Bitfinex got their money stuck in a scam called Crypto Capital. So they were short on customer deposits and they needed to shore that up. So they borrowed money from their sister company. This is completely taboo. This is completely incorrect. Definitely should not have done that. And then when they got caught, well, they dug themselves out of that hole again. They got lucky again because then they're like, okay, we're going to do fundraising for Leo token. We're going to raise a billion dollars, plug that hole, and then give back the, the money that we took from Tether back into Tether's coffers. Technically, I think Tether should actually be whole right now, unless they've also done other crazy shit that we haven't <laughs> discovered yet. For the most part, I actually think that they're pretty well backed. But that being said, they need to cut out all the shady stuff. They need mm. to stop doing the shady stuff. You know what I mean? That, that doesn't inspire confidence. The, the number one trade, there, there's two trades that TradFi people really love. The first one is to short Tether. That's like the first thing they do when they come into the space. Second thing they do, and this is back when the Grayscale uh, trade was still alive, mm. they like to do the Grayscale play. So those are the first two things anybody ever does from TradFi coming into crypto. <laughs> I, I just I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. I, I, I don't think it's that... Uh, that great of a time to short Tether? Should it be trading at one? Maybe not. Maybe like 0.99, maybe 0.999. I, I don't know. But I, but I think for the most part, I'm pretty comfortable with it right now. I'm not looking to uh, particularly short Tether uh, right now. That's hilarious. I think first, you're totally right on the idea that it should trade more like a basket. And I think the key there is transparency. If, yeah. we, all, if we all knew exactly the things that Tether was holding, then the market would be a lot more efficient in, in pricing it. Uh, and it wouldn't be just like based off speculation like it was in the past kind of few hours. And and maybe you're right, like maybe they are like fully bad, but the real issue is that we can't know because there's not, not enough transparency and we need to rely on these like reports that they publish like every few months. And it's, it's just not yes. the right way of inspiring confidence in something that really core to to crypto like it's the by far the largest stable coin Mm -hmm. in the market like everything trades against it and and it's funny that it's you're right like it's it's been anticipated and predicted that tether would be crypto's like black swan event and that it would be the stable coin that would drag everything down and like maybe Mm -hmm. like crypto would end after tether's collapse but it just keeps Re- reviving and, and, and going. And then we have this like real black swan with Luna and it like really did collapse and, and, and actually almost got to zero in a couple of hours. So it's or days. So yeah, th- that all to say that it's incredibly hard to uh, predict th- these things. Like you think like Tether's like the obvious uh, black swan event, but then this other thing comes um, out of nowhere. And yeah. speaking of, of shorting, I'm, I, as you were speaking before, I was wondering, were you short Luna when all this happened? Yeah, I can't comment on the specific positions of the trading desk right now, because some of it is still active. Happy to share that later on once the dust settles. But I will say this, which is that 
we have definitely been short through most of the crash. Not too big in size, but not too small in size. Wow, interesting. Okay, at least we, it, it paid off to uh, predict uh, and, and see these uh, red flags in Luna. I'll definitely want to follow up once it does settles on more details on, on that trade. Super interesting. Okay, so now that we're in the middle of this, what are some of the interesting ripple effects that you're already seeing in the market? Yeah, I think mostly it's just uh, you're seeing a lot of this like contagion spread to other assets. But I also wanted to say one thing that you mentioned, I thought, which is interesting about Tether. And I want to draw the comparison of Tether to USDC, for example. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as of right now, I, I personally trust USDC a little bit more than Tether. It's small. It's a little bit more. It's not a lot more, but I, maybe USDC should be at a dollar. Tether should be at 99, you know, 0.999 or something like that, but a little bit more. And I think that the market trend has generally been in this direction. Way back in the day, Tether was completely dominant and USDC was just the starting new fledgling stablecoin. And now USDC is more than half of Tether's market cap. So clearly the market is also responding to the risks, but they're not responding through the price of Tether. They're responding through the supply of Tether relatively going down and the supply of USDC relatively going up. So what I imagine might happen at some point is that if almost all of the value starts migrating to USDC, there's some balancing equilibrium point in which you want to not have all of your stable coins in one basket, right? If Tether was only one-tenth the market cap of USDC, I feel like more people would then want to hold Tether just to diversify their risk because there are some risks that are implicit to USDC that are not implicit to, to USDT, which is about being in the US like regulatory environment. So there might be more fear that Tether is on back, but there might be more regulatory fear of USDC getting frozen at some point. So I think there's a natural balancing point between the two and it forms a little bit of a duopoly. Maybe there's a room for a third, but it forms at least for now a duopoly. Uh, and there's some natural balancing point. It may not be 50-50, it could be 60-40 or 40-60 or any ratio, but there's a natural equilibrium for that in which they both survive and, and do fairly well. And that's um, basically where, where I think things are going to go. And I think that on the topic of having a decentralized kind of stable coin, another alternative is just to have many different kinds of centralized stable coins. By the mm. time you have hundreds of USDC type stable coins and located in all various jurisdictions across the world, every country has their own version of Tether or USDC. Well, then at that point, you can be fairly sure that, that there's some solvency there. Buyers and sellers, they get to pick and choose who they want the issuer to be. There's competition between them. The local governments, they don't always agree with each other. Not everybody's going to coordinate and freeze everything at once. So you get a little bit of the value of decentralization just from having more of these things too. Yeah, that's a great point. I guess like the question there or the issue there would be on just like liquidity and, and volume. Yeah. If you have a fragmented market, yeah, that's also dangerous and not very useful for big yeah, traders. No. Yeah, I completely agree. So I totally agree with that point. So maybe what I was saying about having 100 just actually doesn't make sense. Maybe it really should just be like two or three or four, right? There, there's some point at which more uh, gives marginal value. And there's some point in which more creates too much stress on the fragmentation. So maybe the natural point is three or four, something like that. But that would still be a good trade-off between safety and liquidity, concentration of liquidity, right? There, there's some natural equilibrating point over there too. Yeah. 
Terra's collapse has caused shockwaves in crypto. Where are those ripple effects being felt the most? Does Kevin see any other projects subject to the same level of risk? And will the real economy be affected at all? Liquidation-free, long-term leveraged tokens. That's what's coming fresh out of TracerDAO's perpetual pools. Deployed on Arbitrum, you can take long or short positions with leverage to trade anything. Commodities, crypto, equities, even NFTs. Dive into perpetual pools at tracer.finance. You can also learn more about this release with The Voyage, a week-by-week journey to earn TCR rewards. Head over to tracer.finance today and take a look for yourself. I would say crypto is still too small for that. And thankfully, uh, UST didn't get up to a trillion in market cap because then things start really getting affected. Good that it wound down now, preferably even sooner than than now. But but yeah, I think, yeah, I don't see that happening. I, what I would say is that in terms of contagion, I don't particularly want to cast aspersions on any individual projects. For the most part, if you look at my Twitter, I've only ever said negative things about basically basically just Luna and UST. For for everything else, I try to be diplomatic within the space. And I understand that there's experiments to be done. And I think for the most part, I'm even okay with people building casinos too, because I think a lot of people just like to gamble. And if people want to play their dumb money games, then they should be able to play their dumb money games. I just thought that this one in particular was just too big. So as much as there are projects that I actually particularly don't like, that's just a personal dislike. And I at least respect that some people do like them. And I don't want to particularly flood their bags or anything like that. To each their own, hopefully we don't get something as systemic, as bad as uniquely dangerous as Luna UST uh, as it is. You Do you see anything else that, that could potentially match it or, or not yet? Like this, that risk hasn't emerged yet? No, I would say it hasn't really emerged. What I would say is that if Tether or USDC was actually unbacked or very, there's, most of the backing is gone, that would be also extremely devastating. But I put the chances of that happening much, much lower than Luna and UST. I think for Luna and UST, it's just apparent that eventually it's inevitable that this would happen. For the others, it's still, it's more opaque. So it's harder to say. It's not an inevitability. Yeah. Okay. And then right now, like the market is just a complete bloodbath like it's just crazy going to any kind of market tracker everything's red do you think are we the beginning of a prolonged crypto winter like we saw in 2018 2019 or do we bounce back there just seems to be so many macro headwinds as well like playing into this it just it's looking very bleak out there i'm i'm wondering what your thoughts are Yeah. So I have uh, basically two things to say about that. So the first is about crypto specifically, right? So let's say this was back to very normalized 0% interest rate policy, back to the good old days Mm -hmm. of the Fed, but no no extra money printing, just a very normalized zero interest rate environment. What I would say is that the timing on the collapse of Luna and UST and also the devaluing of a lot of these cryptos and the market caps have come down quite a ways now. And for the most part, we're, I think, in a pretty good spot. Now, that being said, the narrative is so bad and the fear is so bad, that'll take some time to adjust. So at least for now, what I would say is that there'll probably be... I was originally thinking that Luna would blow up later. So I was thinking like nine months. Now I think maybe six months of just going sideways before a bull market. But that's under normalized 
uh, macro environment. We're not in a normalized macro environment. And as you can, I'm sure you've seen, the equities and, and crypto are very highly correlated these days. And there's also a, a feedback cycle there because as the correlation is very strong, then basically all these quant shops develop these models showing, hey, look, in the past, correlation has been really strong. So we should run this correlation algo. And their correlation algo doing the pair trade between equities and crypto forces the correlation even tighter. Right, which causes the signal to be even stronger for other people to discover, causing them to build correlation algos, so on and so forth, until things get really tightly coupled, and then finally something snaps because they're actually not the same, and then there's a huge decoupling. Right, until that happens, though, what I, I went on a tangent, but until that happens, crypto is still uh, fairly correlated to equities. Maybe this Luna thing is the depegging event or the decor the coupling event. Uh, unfortunately, it's not as as crypto people wanted and the decoupling upward or decoupled downward. We'll see if it actually was the decoupling event. But until that happens, uh, I think macro still is the most important thing. And I am. I want to just caveat to say that I'm not an expert at macro. So these are just these are just my opinions. But I think basically, given where the CPI is printing, like eight and a half percent, real rates are still negative, and Fed basically saying that they're going to maintain the course of you know doing that double rate hike and then probably another one afterwards and so on and so forth and keep going. Uh, what I would say is that. They have to go a long ways to abate this kind of core inflation. I don't think they make it there. I think at some point they just give up. Because generally, if you look at the historical Fed chairmen, Greenspan, Bernanke, folks like that, there's always like a put right on the market. When the market drops by 20% or 25%, there's enough turmoil that the Fed then steps in and then eases up and becomes dovish. This time around, because inflation is so bad, I think politically, they would have to wait until like maybe 25, 30% before doing something like that. So 25, 30% drop in the market. And I think so far it's been just shy of maybe 20%, something like that. So there's a little bit, another 5, 10% to go of a drop in the market before the Fed exercises that put. Now, now, so I think, so they're basically going to keep raising rates, I think, until something like that happens or something just catastrophically bad breaks in the economy and they reverse course. But I don't think they make it all the way up to the point at which inflation is actually abated. So what my thought is that maybe around one and a half percent or two percent or something around there, the Fed just, the market's tanked too much, there's too much pain, Fed gives up, reverses course, and then we just slowly die by paper cuts through inflation. Because whether you die through the market destroying value or whether you die through just your money inflating away, still at the end of the day, most people prefer the more, the gentler approach there. And it's more invisible too. So it's easier to hide it or to obfuscate it or to blame it on um, you know, foreign powers or whatever. I don't know. You, you just do whatever. They're going to do what they need to do and they're going to call it the best of names. That's mm -hmm. what's going to happen basically. Yeah. yeah. That's what I think happens. That's so interesting. Okay. So you think that the, the Fed is not going to go through with hiking rates enough to really make push inflation down. Maybe they do it un until inflation comes down to maybe two, three percent. But yeah. by that time, you think that the fallout on in the market will be too big, like yes. maybe a 25% drop in equities, that politically it's too difficult for the Fed to actually continue on its course. And yeah. by that point, they stop hiking rates and then it just they just let inflation at whatever rate it is at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically my thought. Mm. And uh, I think they're really caught in a hard place because politically 
inflation is very hard to bear. And politically, huge market drops and wiping out of like retirement savings is also hard to bear. If they're going to have to choose one of the two, I think they're going to take the easy way out and they're going to choose inflation. That's what my thought is. If that happens, though, it would seem that's a a better outcome for crypto because narrative wise, at least crypto is meant to be a protection against inflation in fiat. If we see this situation picking up again, where the US dollar is inflating, the crypto investors and advocates can say, okay, go get out of your fiat and, and buy Bitcoin or buy ETH or whatever. Yes, I I completely agree. I'm extremely bullish on crypto in the long term. And that's also part of the reason that I literally dedicated almost my entire career to crypto. Do you think this plays out this year where we start seeing the return of this inflation hedge narrative? I want to say yes. I want to say yes. Yeah. (laughs) Who knows really? But if I had to guess, I, I think it would. Dramatic volatility like we've seen in the past few weeks? is common in crypto, and the space has gone through bull runs and bear markets throughout its entire lifetime. Like all past bear markets, Kevin believes this one will also be a chance for the space to shake out opportunists and crash grab projects, while the most committed teams stick around to build actually great projects. But there are some key differences, including how interconnected crypto now is thanks to DeFi and the effect of powerful macro headwinds. So how long and severe does Kevin expect this bear market to be? To sub crypto, a user has to choose among hundreds of DEXs on multiple networks, all offering different rates and fees. Do you want to avoid that hassle? Swap on OneInch, a DEX aggregator that gets you the best rates than any single DEX. Enjoy the unlimited liquidity across multiple networks and top-level security. Try OneInch now. Yeah, so I think most of it is actually the same. After seeing, I've seen five cycles already. Mm-hmm. Every time it's basically the same. At some point, there's just too much euphoria, mania. People get greedy. Pro, like basically too much capital uh, chases too few good opportunities because they need to, all the investors need to put the money to work. And as things start working, they get even more capital, even greater in orders of magnitude, more capital to deploy. So then supply comes to meet demand. And basically all, all these projects start coming up with all sorts of random crazy ideas and they can still get funding because the investors need to fund somebody. And then finally there's a collapse because obviously if you have just random, like terrible projects, that's not going to push the space forward. Eventually the emperor is revealed to have no clothes. The market crashes, then there's a cycle of digestion as capital dries up. And then finally, during the bottom of the bear market, now you only have true believers who are actually building in the space and they make really good projects. Project quality goes uh, really high. Uh, Almost nobody wants to fund them because there's no capital sloshing around. It's actually the best time to invest, but it's when nobody, most people are most not interested in investing. And then that builds out and leads into the next bull run. So it basically always um, happens the same way. Now, that being said, I think there are maybe a few small differences. What I would say is that in the ICO crash of 2017 to 2018, for the most part, most projects were not as intertangled with each other, right? So you have some good ICOs, you have some bad ICOs, mostly they were bad, but they failed on their own. And then whoever held it lost money. This time around, because of the advent of DeFi, now everything is superimposed with each other. Everything is intertangled with each other. There's a lot more systemic risk. So one blow up could start affecting multiple protocols. The token prices of a lot of different tokens start to become correlated with each other in because of the this intertwining and, and entanglement. So I would say that's one difference. I would say that 
I think another difference would be that things are a lot more mainstream now uh, than they were. And even then, that was more mainstream than 2013. So as more and more people come in, the kinds of things that they want to see and the products that they want to use will start to be very different than what the early adopters uh, wanted to use and what they enjoyed. So I think every cycle, in a way, creates new products which blew ocean further out to general the general population and the tastes and the fashions and basically the demands of a broader and broader what would quote unquote normie uh, audience. And I think that this is a natural course for crypto. I don't think this is a bad thing at all. This is basically the road to mass adoption and this is just going to happen. But what I would say is that you can notice, you would notice the market difference between the types of projects and who they were marketed to, what they do, product design and everything. And you can see that in each of the cycles as it becomes more and more mainstream, the products themselves become flavor-wise more mainstream. And I see that trend continuing through the next cycle, through the next cycle, until it's just fully adopted. So interesting. I definitely saw this uh, sea change in the past year where crypto finally felt pretty mainstream or at least not niche anymore. It it was something that you could tell anyone on the street and that they will have heard of it, especially with Mm -hmm. NFTs. Clubs in Miami were distributing them out to just like regular people, just Mm -hmm. big brands adopting it to the point where it was like not news anymore. Something that in like 2017, it would have blown people's minds, like Mm -hmm. Nike selling NFTs. And like last year was just like, okay, like one more crypto headline. So yeah. I agree, like this cycle was just like spectacular in terms of mainstream adoption. But yeah, maybe we're at this point where the there was too much hype and, and euphoria. And, and now it's that part of the cycle where, mm. you know, things, the, the good projects kind of stick around, the rest go. And it's, I think it's like the, a healthy shift in the market. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, we're going through basically a process of digesting misallocated capital. Mm. And in this process, where where would investors, what's a good place for investors to take cover? Is it mm-hmm. like going to the, the safest stable coins, earn a little bit of interest, holding Bitcoin and ETH or a basket of just like blue chip cryptos? Or what would you recommend? I think you just buy whatever you want really at the end of the day. Like I don't I don't want to particularly I don't want to shill long or short any particular coins because I think that would be a little bit irresponsible. But what I would say is that I'll basically repeat what I heard from Drunken Miller as he was talking about the stock market. And what he was saying is that you want to buy he wanted to buy assets which were boring companies but which had good cash flows and with a lot of pricing power. So for example, I think he bought into this door company. They make like doors, right? And uh, very boring business, but they have a huge market share. I don't know if they're a full monopoly or they have you know, one of two duopolies, but basically they have immense pricing power, right? And so they, they can pass on a lot of the price inflation to the consumer. And then also on top of that, it's not like some thousand XPE multiple for tech stocks or something like that. It's not, it's not, it's value is not coming from expectations of growth. It's value is coming from a very modest multiple as a discount to the cash flows that it generates. So I think that is a, a prudent and sound way of thinking about things. 
I think some people would agree, some people disagree, but I think the reasoning, at least if you believe that paradigm is, is sound. And I think in crypto, there may be some projects which are more like that and some projects which are more the opposite of that. So projects with like actual like revenue or protocol fee or whatever you want to call it, uh, actual users and activity um, mm-hmm. happening, sustaining its value than mm-hmm. more just ex- expectations of, of some other thing being built. Yeah. And I would say particularly where the revenue eventually goes to the token holders through some kind of buy and burn mechanism or some other type of mechanism that and that and it goes to them so that they're able to capture the value of it now i, I don't want to preclude pure governance tokens because i think there's still an expectation in pure governance tokens that they will at some point be able to vote themselves the fees generated by the protocol. So I think there is some still future expectation of cash flows, but I would say that that the protocols which derive their value from future expected growth, that's not that's it's just not a great time maybe for those. What about staking uh, tokens and like proof of stake protocols? Is that something that you're bullish on? Well, what I would say is that with proof of stake and with staking what exactly is going on financially when you stake? So if everybody stakes, then everybody gets the seniorage and then everybody still has the same share of the network. Hmm. So effectively, then the amount that you get in staking combats the inflation exactly uh, that happens on the supply side. So nominal yields are positive, but real yields are actually zero. Right now, let's say nobody staked except for one person. Then that person collects all of the yield and gets zero inflation. He faces zero inflation because he the only inflation he faces is the new money that he gets. He captures all of the seniorage. So then the real yield for him is what the nominal yield is. Right now, in practice, not everybody's going to stake, and not just one person is going to stake, but it's going to be some mix of the two. And effectively, what is going on here? is that you're going to get some kind of real yield between the nominal yield and zero. And where does this real yield come from? It comes from the non-stakers. So it's effectively a transfer of value from the stakers or from the non-stakers to the stakers. Now you might ask, why would someone not why would someone be willing to be a non-staker and just transfer this value and pay all the stakers because maybe they have other productive uses for the the capital not being staked. Right? Maybe they have this yield farming strategy, this trading strategy, or this and that. They have some productive uses for it. So in my opinion, the market basically figures out uh, an equilibrium where some people will stake, some people won't, and both will get exactly what they're looking for. And that's what my thought is on, on, on staking and the financial aspect of it. A super interesting way of looking at it. So like it, it depends on like the amount of risk that, that you want to take. Do you want that maybe smaller or, or lower yield from staking? Or do you want to use that capital in some other kind of product productive protocol or token that might get you a higher return? Yeah, it's obvious in the in the extreme case, because if everybody staked and there was no liquid moving supply of this token, then it's then at the end of the day that the network is not very valuable, right? So the marginal person who can figure out some use of it can basically benefit greatly. And there's basically an incentive for at least somebody to not be a staker 
And then if nobody's a staker, then there's an incentive for one person to be the staker because then they collect all the seniorage, right? So the whole thing balances out at some point in, in the middle. And that was, I guess, the point I was trying to make there. Yeah. Cool. All right. And then I guess just for an overview of the your like position on, on the market going forward, are you long crypto at the moment or just like taking chips off the table? Are you in cash? Uh, if you can give like a little, like a breakdown of where you stand. Yeah. One of the reasons that, so there's two reasons that I, I don't want to give my opinion on this. So the first reason is that our fund positions are private and generally I like to keep it that way. And the second reason is that I don't like the idea of influencers going on podcasts or shows or stuff like that. And, you know, shilling things that they're holding, shilling their bags or shilling their short positions. So I don't want to be in a position where we already have a position on, and then I'm letting people know so that they can come behind me and make my position profitable. So I just, I don't want to be in that kind of position where there is that kind of conflict of interest. Okay. That's totally fair and understandable. It's a great point. Okay. And then to wrap up, I'd love to ask you, Kevin, how or what makes you defiant? What I would say is my hair, it just at some point in my life, I just started growing out long and <laughs> just nobody left to, to, to impress and just, I just, just didn't give a fuck anymore. So that's what makes me defiant, I guess. Awesome. That does say <laughs> something about your personality. I think a hair, a hairstyle is a reflection of that. So good. This was so interesting, Kevin. Thank you so much for kind of helping me make sense of the past uh, couple of days. I know that we'll look back at this time and have our minds blown what happened and how much crypto changed from this. I guess like we'll still need the dust to settle to take lots of valuable lessons from from just what what transpired. So thank you so much again for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. And likewise, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Podcast. Together, we are taking hold of the world of DeFi and Web3 with the most influential voices in the space. Don't forget to subscribe to all our channels, our newsletter, YouTube, social media accounts, and of course, this podcast. See you next week.